Hey, Natasha. Hey, how are you, how are you doing? Damnation Alley. This movie that we watched today for the podcast is about a huge 12-wheeled, teched-out recreational vehicle used by survivors of a nuclear war to make a cross-country road trip. Think National Lampoon's Vacation meets Mad Max. Now I regret never seeing Chevy Chase in National Lampoon's Radiation Vacation. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And I'm joined in the podcast studio over Zoom today with my usual co-host, James. Welcome. Hi. Glad to be back, Tim. Why are you, why are you here? What's, what's your thing? What's your hook and angle here? I, I ask myself that every day. Uh, I'm a recovering uh, transatlantic and terrorism policy practitioner turned tabletop gaming professional and movie nerd. So my, my, my CV is uh, both varied and lacking. But uh, it's, it's always, a, always a pleasure to be on the pod, to be your, your co-host. And I'm uh, really excited today uh, to speak with our, our guest, Natasha. Great. Yeah, we got to balance out um, this because, you know, you're, you're great, but we need some extra expertise uh, in many ways for this particular episode. So I want to welcome Dr. Natasha Bajma, the director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risk. She's also awesomely the founder and CEO of the Nuclear Spin Cycle. I think is where I first came across you. Uh, it's a consulting firm helping people who want to succeed where national security, entertainment, and publishing meet. Natasha, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Anyone who's been on supercriticalpodcast.com would also know Natasha's the individual who uh, expertly designed all of the graphics on that site, which is, I get so many compliments for that. And they ask me, oh, that's really cool. How did you do that? And I go, just got cool friends who know how to do things. <laughs> Thanks so much. I wouldn't say it was expertly, but maybe better than average. I love it. So this is an interesting one and that we're going to cover today podcast movie wise. Uh, and, but you're also the perfect guest to have us talk about this movie from 1977, Damnation Alley. Kind of a terrible movie where our heroes, characters, travel from nuclear weapon site to nuclear weapon site across a war-torn, radioactive United States wasteland uh, in a souped-up military RV, recreational vehicle. I wanted Natasha here because basically you did a version of this, uh, too. I think minus the nuclear war element... But I'm not going to ask you whether or not you had missiles on your on your RV. I won't reveal anything about that. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, your trip, about radioactive road tripping. Where did the goal for this trip? I want to talk a little bit about it and um, kind of where it stands today. Yeah. So, I mean, the goal of the trip was to make nuclear weapons, which tend to be feel abstract, far away, not even like in this country, but make them more tangible and show... Americans that they're all around us. Um, and actually we live closer to them than we think. And they tend to be close to things that we love and care about. And that essentially means that they are targets in a potential nuclear war. So that was the goal. I got the idea when I actually visited, I think it was probably my first nuclear weapons site. Um, 
out in Mill Valley, California, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. There's a fully restored um, Nike Hercules missile site there. And we got a tour from a former missileer. So someone who was actually stationed there when he was 18 years old, and now he's in probably his seventies. I was just blown away. Of course, I've been a nuclear weapons expert for 20 years by this point, but it just felt so much more real. And then, you know, of course I'd read about the Nike Hercules um, system, but it'd been long, you know, taken out of um, operation. And so I hadn't really thought about the implications until I was standing just a few miles north of um, San Francisco and wondering if we did actually use these nuclear-tipped land-based uh, missiles and tried to hit down a Soviet squadron, uh, bomber squadron, what would actually happen on U.S. territory to the poor people living below? And I asked the awkward question to the missileer, and he said, yeah, <laughs> awkward. <laughs> so these missiles- Not a direct hit, question mark? Yeah, you know, like- <laughs> These missiles were designed to protect San Francisco from a Soviet bomber attack, but- if there was an air burst elsewhere over U.S. territory, obviously that would lead to effects on the ground somewhere. So that really kind of left um, a profound uh, impact with me. And then in the middle of the pandemic, when I was super restless after about six months <laughs> and um, had thought about um, RVing because it was on my bucket list to have an RV, I thought this this could be a cool thing to do. That's excellent. Yeah, I remember we went on a hike uh, to that site uh, when I was visiting a former guest of the podcast, Boris, um, in San Francisco. And it seems like these days, it's pretty much a place for teenagers to go watch the sunset and make out. Uh, Very different than what it was initially built for, that particular missile site. When you did this um, trip, uh, where were some of the places that you you went to? Because I know the purpose of this was to film it, do interviews, talk about some of these sites, and make it really interesting, engaging, and approachable for people for maybe like a pilot of a, a YouTube series or things like this? What were some of the places that you, that you stopped in that would might be good highlights? Yeah. So, I mean, some of my my most notable ones where, where I kind of had the most profound experience um, was um, the test site in Mississippi mm-hmm. near a small town called Baxterville, Mississippi. The U.S. government detonated uh, two nuclear weapons underground, uh, primarily to determine whether or not we could detect underground um, uh, testing. And this was in um, the wake of the 1963 limited test ban treaty. Um, So testing was going to go underground. And so we worried um, about whether we could still track the development of new programs around the world. And the tests were successful in that they showed that we could indeed um, identify seismic, you know, distinguish between seismic activity and nuclear detonations underground. I visited Everglades National Park, which is also home to a former Nike Hercules site. And so there were nuclear weapons deployed to Everglades within the boundaries of Everglades National Park, um, which is kind of crazy because of the water table and the wildlife. So the stories the tour guide would tell us about what the poor soldiers had to go through living in Everglades National Park with alligators and snakes and you name it. And the other uh, interesting thing is this was um, one of the only uh, Nike Hercules sites that was above ground for obvious reasons because of the water table. And so it was a completely different setup than the one in Mill Valley. One of of my most um, memorable moments was sleeping in a former Titan II missile silo. 
Um, I had originally, so this is an Airbnb. It's been fully converted into an Airbnb before you think I'm all weird. I was going to say like you stayed, you know, you you hid in the bathroom after the tour was over. (laughs) Cement silo or something. (laughs) However, I, you know, everyone has different fears and I don't like there being only one door. Well, there was technically an emergency exit, but I show it in my video and it would not be fun (laughs) to get out of that emergency exit. I did not want to sleep in the silo, even though I had rented the whole thing and could sleep in the silo, but it was 14 degrees in Arkansas. So I slept in the silo. (laughs) There There are limits. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting experience. Another final one would be Great Falls, Montana. So I went to visit Malmstrom Air Force Base. They have a small museum there, but I also camped there. And um, for those of you who don't know, it's one of the remaining ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile sites. I did think about camping amongst 150 nuclear missiles, and that was a weird feeling. Definitely would make for some interesting, you know, campfire stories uh, when you're telling a scary story and all of a sudden the sky lights up. So I'm glad that that trouble didn't come your way. The people in this movie who, uh, which we'll get into here in a second, kind of had this you know, cross-country journey uh, with their military-style RV, they ran into some issues along the way with various things, stopping and going and breaking down. Uh, Was your trip pretty smooth all the way through? No. I left Texas on January 1, 2022. And it was January 21, 2022, when I decided I was going to have to return home to Texas because about... 10 things had broken on the RV, maybe more, but the AC broke. And that was kind of the end. I was under so many heat domes the following summer. I mean, I could not have survived in the camper without AC. So Mm -hmm. I was correct in my assessment that AC was a critical resource that I needed. And when I called around in Florida, because that's where I was at the time, the weight to get into an RV place, because this was during the pandemic, supply chain issues, et cetera, so it was January 21. They could get me in March 15. And that was just getting me in the door. Ooh. So I went home and I was only able to start my trip again on June 1. So that was the probably the biggest um, whammy. And that meant I had to reconfigure the entire trip. It obviously had to be not a year. It had to be shorter. But the most fun trouble that I had that relates to this movie is the several thousand member ant colony that decided to make my camper home. So a truck camper, when you take it off the truck is on four jacks. And so those jacks have contact with the ground. And in Mississippi, I didn't realize that my campsite was essentially on mounds of ants. So super cool. Yay. At one point, I I think I noticed the ants coming in first. So they were already well on their way. They were finding holes in the camper and coming in. And so I go outside and there are thousands of ants. It's literally thousands of ants going up my jack into my camper, into all the little crack thingies. And so that began a two and a half hour war against the ants so I spent two and a half hours killing ants and then I was able to go to um get some ant stuff and hopefully these weren't killer ants uh that have been empowered by the nuclear test site but they seemed like they were resilient and definitely they felt like they were killer ants at the time Oof. but it turns out I'm a serial ant killer 
I'm, I'm glad that the journey is over. I'm glad that uh, you were able to premiere the pilot of this uh, at a film festival uh, last October. How did that go? I went well. Um, it's weird, I guess, um, sitting in a theater with other people um, watching your film on the big screen for the first time. It is probably one of the most anxiety-ridden experiences mm -hmm. I've ever had in my entire life, and I do not intend to repeat. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to see. Maybe we'll, at the end of the episode, we'll 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 tease kind of where people might be able to uh, either find this or hear what's next and things like this. But I'm I definitely you've confirmed for me that you are the right person to have to talk about Damnation Alley, uh, which is a movie where pretty much the big draw of it is that there's this thing called a Landmaster, a big sixteen wheeled vehicle, which we'll get into. But it makes a cross country nuclear radioactive road trip of its own. Uh, this is a movie that was directed by Jack Schmite, former U.S. Air Force pilot during World War II, turned director, uh, made a bunch of fun movies for Canon Pictures, like uh, Number One with a Bullet, as well as Airport 1975, uh, which is that fun sequel to the disaster movie Airport, which I think is the movie that Airplane, exclamation mark, is uh, parroting. Uh, and this is based on a book from 1969 by the same title, uh, Roger Zelansky. Apparently not a lot of it is based, um, you know, one-to-one -one comparisons uh, but we'll get into that later. James, who's in this movie? Because it's got an interesting cast. It does have an interesting cast, Tim, yeah. So we have Jan Michael Vincent. Is it Jan or John? I don't I think it's Jan. Jan, okay. There you go. Uh, Jan Michael Vincent as First Lieutenant Jake Tanner. Uh, he's a smarmy young uh, U.S. Air Force missileer. Uh, we have, of course, George Pippard of A-Team fame um, as the cigar-chewing, cigarette-smoking, by-the-books uh, major Eugene Sam Denton. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, Hannibal from the A-Team, Breakfast at Tiffany's, perhaps one of my favorite actor names, just, just flows off the tongue, George mm -hmm. Pippard, wonderful. We have French actress uh, Dominique Sanda as Janice, uh, a French performer in Vegas who survives in a follow shelter who joins the crew through a plot hook that is interesting. Um, and then we have Paul Winfield as Keegan, um, who was in uh, Twilight's Less Gleaming and Star Trek II. And we have kind of playing the younger younger teenager in the movie is Jackie Earl Harley as Billy, uh, who people probably remember from Bad News Bears. He's Rorschach in Watch, the Watchmen movie. And he has a small part in the not so great basketball comedy with Will Ferrell, uh, semi-pro. Yeah, pretty, uh, so, pretty, fun, pretty fun one. Yeah, pretty fun one. If if you know, not not Will Ferrell's finest work from that era, but it's okay. But yeah, so it's a, it's a small cast. Uh, this actually reminds me of the last movie we did, Five. You know, a very a very tight cast. There are five cast members. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe, well, I won't spoil it, but there are five principal cast members, mm -hmm. um, along with some uh, some animal animal actors. Um, I did not watch. Till the end to see if and any animals were harmed in the creation of this film. I suspect that some probably were, but yeah. So this this had a had a mixed sort of a mixed reception. Uh, Eight million dollar budget film made less than four million, which uh, and that included rental sales. So that's uh, in in the movie business they call that not good. Um, <laughs> not not a great performance from the from this film. Losing four million dollars. Uh, had a nice nice run as a TV movie. Later on, years later on NBC. Coincidentally, came out around the same time as the day after in 1983 on ABC. Yeah, I think it was a little little counter programming. Yeah, yeah, it's like what what IP do we have in the bank that we can kind of kind of put out to counter what's what's going on? Uh, Rotten Tomato has this at 40% rotten. When I read that, I thought that was a generous score for mm -hmm. for, for this film. <laughs> um, I will I will say it's got some good people in it. Jerry Goldsmith, who I always like to point out. 
who did the uh, soundtrack, the score for Rudy, um, also did the score for this one. And it's, it's, the score is not the, the worst part of the movie. Yeah, and I think maybe the next part, Tim, explains a little bit of why there were some really great people attached with this and things didn't go as planned. Yeah, let me, I really want to get into the movie and hear everybody's thoughts and stuff, but this is the piece of trivia that I love uh, learning about. So this movie came out in 1977. People, uh, and it's a sci-fi movie, you know, sci-fi action, I guess. Uh, James, is there another big like sci-fi action movie or, or Natasha that came out in 1977 that you might be aware of? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars. So this was both made by 21st Century Studios, uh, 21st Century Fox, basically. And they thought that the big movie for this year was going to be Damnation Alley. They put $8 million, which at that time was a huge budget. They they thought this was going to be their, their big movie. And they f- finished filming it in 1976 and they were done. All they had to do was post-production. They were going to use this budget that they had remaining and do all of the effects that they thought they, the movie needed. Well, the studio saw that Star Wars, this like first time director, George Lucas was was they were over budget and they needed something to finish the movie. So they took money from Damnation Alley that they thought were cost savings and gave it to Star Wars. And then the Damnation Alley people were like, wait, we need that for post-production. So that screwed their plans and caused them to have lots of delays. They had to make a bunch of choices and that caused delays. And then ultimately Star Wars got to come out first. Kind of people forgot about Damnation Alley. So that's too bad for them, I guess. We could talk a little bit at the end of the podcast. I have some points that were deleted from the movie and kind of what they initially had planned to do. And you all get to tell me whether you thought if they had the budget, they could have finally went head to head with Star Wars. But it, this movie is barely 90 minutes. It was originally two hours and 15 minutes. Uh, but basically, it seemed like the marketing hook was, hey, you like Star Wars, spaceships? What about this thing, uh, this RV that kind of looks like a spaceship, uh, but it can't fly? Can you imagine a little bit of the interesting counter history should this have been the big one and we're still having Damnation Alley sequels to this day? Well, I, I do like that. I mean, I, I have no reason to believe it's not true, but I, I do like the narrative that this would have been great were it not for the executives. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> there were some other problems with production. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. let's dive in and, and find out what we think those are. So I have two main questions that we'll be thinking about uh, when, we're, when we're going through this. One, how does this movie use things like radiation, military order, nuclear war to drive the plot, the characters, and the Landmaster vehicle? Because... It is not as big of a prominent thing in the book. It is and it isn't, but this movie is like it's front and center. Uh, and then secondly, kind of what do we think of the actual pitfalls that might be facing people driving an RV across the country on a nuclear road trip? Natasha can tell us, oh, yeah, you know what? I have a similar experience right here. But we'll get into that now. Uh, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen this movie, it's not the easiest one to find. Fortunately, people put it on YouTube every once in a while because I don't think anyone's fighting to get it off of there copyright-wise. Uh, but that's how I found it. And But you can also find old, old, old DVD copies of it or it occasionally will, will pop up on TV. But that's pretty much how I, I found it. Multiple warhead strike confirmed. Retaliatory strike on advisement. Hostile missiles heading to major U.S. population targets. Launch retaliatory missiles. All enemy targets. You have seen great adventures. Now you're about to live one. Damnation Alley. Everything man remembers is gone. 
everything he has achieved is forgotten. Every place he has lived has become a wasteland, desolate, barren. And these five survivors may be the only humans left alive. Together, they will attempt a journey into the unknown. Courage and the instinct to live could carry them safely through the hell that lies ahead. The devastation of man. And the mutations of nature gone wild. And somehow, they must endure this journey through the nightmare of what we once knew as Earth. Somehow they must survive this journey through Damnation Alley. Starring Jan Michael Vincent, George Pavard, Dominique Sander, Paul Winfield, Jackie Earl Haley, produced in the magic of Sound 360. More than a motion picture, an adventure you'll never forget. We open on a U.S. Air Force uh, ICBM silo in and, and base in the California desert. Despite the fact that we do not and have never had operational nuclear missiles in California, this is this is something that the movie fabricates. Um, I think. Yeah, Natasha pointed this out to me in, in the notes sections that there, uh, in Vandenberg, there was like a Titan II training facility, or okay. was it more than that, Natasha? I'm pretty sure missiles were stationed there based really? on the website I saw, but I didn't dig into it. So, I mean, it's hard to really know what's what, but um, based on the website I found, there were Titan II missile silos there. See, maybe, see, this is where someone needs to, to write in, because I, when I was seeing that, it seemed like it was like a training facility to teach people how to use. Well, now. So I thought it was, but you know, if it was at one point, I apologize to the, to the, to the filmmakers, but it was an interesting place to start the movie because they do this cross country road trip. You know, it would be a shorter movie if they started it in like Wyoming or Montana or, you know, North Dakota or somewhere else. Well, so one of my issues with, and we'll, we'll get to it as we drive across the country, is they really never left California. Yeah, it seemed like it. In the scenery. So really, it's like California, 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 Detroit, <laughs> and then <laughs> Albany. And like having been on a five-month road trip last summer, I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of different landscapes between California and Detroit, which is essentially an automobile dump, which <laughs> may or may not be accurate. I'm from Michigan, so I take that real hard. <laughs> but yeah, and then Albany, they end up in Albany, which is quite far into New York, and there's a lot of space between those places. Yeah, so they never left California. Well, this reminded me of a road trip that I took with my parents. My mom is a little bit obsessed with the Mother Road, uh, Route 66. So we've done that drive uh, once or twice where it kind of ends. I think it starts in Chicago and it ends in Santa Monica Pier, right outside LA. So as someone had done that the other direction, I would agree. It's like there's lots of things and not just all um, kind of these interesting looking mountain, rocky, craggy areas that just seem to be the only place that they are running across in the movie. So you get to Oklahoma and there's not as many of those higher mountains anymore mm. for a long time. <laughs> well, this before they get on their road trip and, and, and confuse us about their various uh, sceneries and destinations. Uh, James, what? It's 1979, right? 1979. We made a, a rash, uh, fast talking first lieutenant, Jake Tanner, um, played by Jan Michael Vincent. Uh, he's paired up with a more senior Major Eugene Sam Denton, played by uh, George Pard. They are both on duty at the silo uh, of the base. 
they are a crew of two people who are responsible for waiting for the silo, uh, waiting in the silos for orders to fire their missiles. So they're like the the go team, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. not the A team that comes later. Um, but the the uh, <laughs> they're 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 a two person team who are uh, you're, you're led to believe their training exercises, which we'll get into in just a couple seconds. Um, that they are kind of the guys who, for those of us who are non experts, they're the the turn your keys guys. That's that's sort of how this is is set up between them. And there's um, definitely like uh, and Tim, I'll, uh, you know, you could dive into a little more of the details here, but they they're framing this as sort of like a generational conflict: the young guy and kind of the older, more sensible steward of of this operation from the very get go. So. Uh, that's that's sort of the setup. They're kind of walking through the silo, talking to various people, uh, going through various security doors, security clearing processes. It's it's interesting actually. It's in contrast to the rest of the movie, where every everything is kind of gruff and why by the seat of your pants. And Jake Tanner in particular is much more of like a wild man kind of cowboy type character. And and this you know he's a he's a U.S. Uh, he's, he's an Air Force officer. Um, he's he's kind of just doing things by the book following training procedures opens very very slow very plotting i think his haircut was highly suspect mm-hmm. yeah no, i don't think that was up to code at all <laughs> that was not up to code <laughs> well it's always so fascinating to me that in a lot of these movies they when they have missileers shown and i'm thinking of like war games where you have john spencer and michael madsen in them they're always portrayed as older people tend to be like people like you know gray hairs or people who are Definitely in the later part, uh, middle part of their Air Force career. And, you know, I think I'm always, because every time I meet missileers these days, they tend to be fairly younger people. Um, Natasha, I think, has that been your experience in terms of? Well, I mean, the guy that I met um, out in San Francisco, he was 18 when he was manning the site. And um, I think they did um, have those folks be younger. Um, It was a brutal, brutal job. It wasn't one that you would like aspire to. But I think the other the other issue is they wanted people to turn the key without thinking, right? They didn't want anybody to second guess. Mm-hmm. And I think you go up the command chain, you know, and you have more life experience and more, I think you're probably a little bit more resistant to, yeah, I want to launch this nuke, maybe. And, and I, I was wondering, when did that start? Because it seems like very early on in my in the research I was looking at, like in the 50s and the 60s, it was like, a, all right, this is brand new. You know, the people who were older uh, tended to be wanted to be part of that because it was new. It was exciting. And then it seemed like right around that time period as well, they started to recruit people that tended to be ranging with the one number that I saw was between 22 and 30 age um, years old in the 1970s. They mostly were commissioned officers that tended to skew younger. And I think it also makes sense. The more and more that you build silos around the United States and around the world um, where you want to be basing things like this. Eventually, you run out of people who have been in their career for a long time. You have to generally, you know, skew a little bit younger. And as you mentioned, this is pretty grueling. You know, when I looked at uh, when a one firsthand account in the Military Standard uh, magazine, here's a the story that I saw here was once placed on the duty rotation schedule for a Minuteman missile wing, a two man crew averaged five tours per month of 36 to 40 hours per tour. There was travel time to and from the silo that could be considerable. Uh, silos at Minot uh, Air Force Base in North Dakota required a trip of 150 miles during the 36-hour shift. The crew stood two 12-hour shifts in the underground launch facility, broken up by 12 on-site rest periods while another team stood watch. So this is not a job for someone who maybe is later in their career 
uh, tend to be a little bit younger. So nevertheless, they want to set up in the movie this generational conflict. I think even at one point, Tanner gets told to his face by Denton, I put in for a request. I want someone else to, to be part of my team. I think I should mention I've applied for a roster change. Oh? Why is that? I just think we're not temperamentally suited as a work team. You're just going to have to believe you don't meet specifications. Whose specifications, sir? Mine. It was the hair. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. Told him to go get a haircut. They run into a few other people as they're going through this very, you know, in-depth security procedure that that James mentioned. They meet Sergeant Tom Keegan, uh, who's the Paul Winfield actor who also, as James mentioned, was in Twilight Last Gleaming, another movie that we covered on the podcast here. I believe that one I covered with uh, Dr. Stephen Schwartz. That was a fun episode. Keegan is, we, one thing we know about him is he's a talented painter. He's done like portraits of other silo members. Denton even wants one for his wife because like, of a gift for his wife. And they play chess together. So this was, I was like, oh, this would make sense. When you're on these long, long, long tours and uh, uh, rotations, you got to find something to do when you're here in the silo. So the, the source that I saw um, is a fun article I'll, I'll link to at the end of the episode uh, in Wired Magazine called Death Wears a Snuggie by a former missileer who talks about the ways that they stayed sane. Um, the quote here is that training is about as exciting as the job will get. A blessing considering the mission. Being a missileer means your worst enemy is boredom. No battlefield heroism. No medals to be won. The duty is seen as a dull anachronism. So what he said was he stayed comfy down there where it was cold. uh, Wearing fleece slippers and snuggies. Uh, They read a lot. uh, They monitored the status of the missiles, the gauges, things like that. They watched DVDs like Lost and Entourage. You know, they never brought video games down. Apparently they were playing once with a Nintendo Wii controller. And that turned out uh, to cause the system to think that there was a false electromagnetic pulse attack and shut down. So I imagine the Switch and other video game systems did not tend to get down there. But it sounded like ways to to keep sane. If you all were stationed down there, what would be your main go-to to to, uh, stay sane? Well, I'm very disappointed that video games were forbidden because that would be my main go-to. But I guess board games, I guess, is the best alternative. But you only have two people. Well, maybe Mm. you have a few more people that you could add in, but... Yeah, you can only play two two people board games. Although I write fiction, I mean, if if we're really, really going to make this realistic, uh-huh. I do write fiction and and you know, I do art, so there I can do a lot of things, I guess. Nice, yeah. You you come out of the on, on a trip and you got a whole you know got a novella ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yep. James, if my 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 shift mate were into like Magic the Gathering or another <laughs> tabletop <laughs> tabletop game, it'd probably be pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> just just do that for. For hours on end, were they not? I don't know. Like I would say, like D and D or something, because you could have a really good D and D campaign if you had like four people who were just like killing time. If it's just two people, that could be a little tough. Hopefully, the, di- the different silos can talk to each other. Yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe you can kind of get some kind of remote thing going. Well, D- Denton and Tanner, they're not playing games. Uh, they're they're staying no. alert, right? That's right. They're staying alert. They're uh, they're all business. Uh, they're 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 doing the training exercises and uh, running drills to kind of. This is where you see them do the. That they both turn their keys, and this is where this is the first time where I could tell that this movie was um, going to be tough. Like they're they're doing this, you know, they they do this drill, they do this training exercise, and then all of a sudden, very quickly, the actual attack begins to happen. And and the edit here is very, I mean, frankly, it's just sloppy. It's like it's 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 really like they're doing this thing, and then the attack happens. It was very unclear to me what was going on, and I watched it like two or three times. It's like 
five minute scene and i i still really can't tell like where the seams are where the exercise ends and the all of a sudden things are are, are kind of kicking off yeah yeah i think that they do it very solid like they seem like they've done this wrote it's wrote to them at this point they've done the yeah. drill a bunch so it's hard to differentiate between a situation where this is a drill versus a real exercise arm all missiles All missiles armed. There's a big board uh, at the base uh, on the wall, like in Doctor Strange stuff, that seems to indicate that there's this massive incoming missile strike. M1 alert, one. We've confirmed hostile. Hostile, hostile missiles heading to major U.S. population targets. 300 interceptors airborne. Confirm. I probably, probably due to budget or, you know, just kind of simplifying things. This seems like this combines the role of a missile base, which launches the missiles, and a facility that, like uh, NORAD or STRATCOM, that tends to be a, a place where there's early warning detection and command and control, coordination, things like that. Um, Natasha, am I off on that? Like, they, they seem like they combine these two things together, right? You're, you're correct. So what's interesting, having visited um, some of these missile silos and then the control center, so... Basically, they would be attached to an Air Force base, which was much further away, mm -hmm. but there would be like a certain number of missile silos, like eight to 10 or so, that would be then controlled by a single control center. So they were missing that element. It's kind of they merged them all into one. So NORAD would be where they would be looking at the bigger picture. I don't think you would see the bigger picture at these places. I think really it's just about turning the key. Yeah, you, you get a phone call. It's like, do yeah. your thing. There's not command there because if there were command there, then they could interfere. They could not turn the key, right? I mean, the, the point of this was to to make it remote. You get the call, you decode the the information, and you would turn the key. Insert keys. Inserted. Rotate on my command. Three, two, one. Rotate. One, two, three. Release. I'm getting launch indications. But after. This NORAD facility thing seems to be confirming that the attack is happening. They say that there's multiple impacts confirmed somewhere. Uh, Tanner and Denton follow through. They they very almost like in a bored manner run through the procedures. And I actually they go a little slower than I've seen before in terms of the drills. I think you generally try to get this done in like less than a minute. Once you get the codes, check the messages, program, turn the keys, flip the switches. They seem to go a little slower. Uh, maybe for us moviegoers, but they, they follow through with the the process and there are missiles in the air. And then, the, kind of funny, they find their way back to the launch facility, so they kind of ignore when Natasha mentioned that these particular, like, launch facilities tend to be further located apart from each other, like, you know, somewhat miles apart, but Dan, Tanner and Denton pretty much get back to the command center and watch the missiles coming and going, and they start hitting um, the United States uh, launches hundreds of interceptor missiles. These seem to be, Natasha, to me, at least like conventional warhead missile, like basically like national missile defense, but they don't seem to be like we, we were talking earlier, Nike missiles, nukes that fly up in the air and try to destroy incoming things. Well, it was very interesting because this was 1970s and we didn't have interceptor missiles. Yeah, so I don't know it what this is. It was this thing called the ABM Treaty. Yeah. So awkward. Yes, yeah, so, gotcha. I'm sure. I'm sure the Russians lodged a complaint um, as the missiles were coming through. It's obviously evidence that we were in violation. And forty percent, I would say that's pretty darn accurate. I would, you know. Yeah. 
in terms of how many they destroyed from the incoming missiles. I don't know if our system today is that accurate. No. And and they, you know, they, they destroy a bunch of them incoming, but there's still enough. They detonate, they land, they destroy major cities. Uh, they go through all the major cities like Washington, D.C., Chicago, Trenton, New Jersey. So that's my that's my little, uh, you know, I grew up in New Jersey for listeners. Uh, for Natasha, and it's uh, it's just it was such so strange. It was like DC's gone, St. Louis, Chicago, Trenton. <laughs> they probably get they would probably get Trenton within the Philadelphia blast radius. You don't have to do you don't have to dedicate a, a, a full one to Trenton. You're going to get it with the Philly one. So, um, but I, I always appreciate the shout out. I have to look up who's the screenwriter. Who knows? You know. They couldn't get Detroit and put us out of our misery. <laughs> we are treated to some stock footage of missiles from the United States taking <laughs> off from their silos. Some of this stuff, I, I was like, I know that from somewhere. Uh, some of them are from literally Superman, the movie, uh, which came out in the late 70s as well, 78. But even though it came out later, it was the same exact stock footage. And, uh, we get nuclear testing footage. And then it gets fade to black as Tanner, you know, the brash guy who doesn't always do things by the book, lights up a cigarette right under a sign that says do not smoke uh, in the command center. We kind of see that, uh, you know, the bombs are dropped and the war is over uh, as far as we're concerned with. Because two years later, that's where the movie jumps next. We get a text on the screen in front of this desert landscape. Everything from this point on has some kind of like red filter to it. And then the skies, which we'll talk about, are, are these wild-looking Aurorius Borealis, but red or blue kind of sky. And what the text says is, tilted on its axis as a result of the nuclear holocaust, the Earth lived through a reign of terror with storms and floods of unprecedented severity. When this epoch began to wind down, the remnants of life once more ventured forth to commence the struggle for survival and dominance. This is the story of some of them. Definitely, I was getting 18 vibes. James, and listening to this, like, you know, uh, a crew of people, uh, other run from the law for a crime they did not commit. I was getting that kind of like 1970s vibe. Yeah, it feels very television-y, <laughs> I guess. Basically, at this point in the movie, we, we are treated to our first, like, major, like, science fiction element to it. Because so far, this has been pretty standard nuclear war cinema. Like, Natasha, you've taught a lot of people... Uh, how to write these kinds of stories you know at this point nothing that's not like out of place and then all of a sudden the earth's tilted off its axis would you have recommended this no no for so many reasons no i mean i i i'm passionate about i think facts are exciting right there's so many facts about the consequence of nuclear war that would have been better to highlight than something completely and totally fictional and irrelevant. And I don't want to spoil the end. I don't know. It just felt like some sort of very weird device, Mm -hmm. storytelling device to make everything super weird because the writers didn't have enough imagination to, or maybe they didn't want to tell a really terrible apocalyptic story because it would have been so much worse. There would not have been a lot of running outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, RV or otherwise, it's like the, if you want to tell a story about like survivors, you have to give them a chance to survive. And all, you know, at this point, really the only scene, the thing that we will introduce to our characters again, but you know, the, the sky looks weird. It's kind of all, we, all we've gotten so far. Um, otherwise they seem to be living their lives pretty, pretty normally. This reminds me, well, it's not reminds me, it's pretty much very similar to another movie that came out about 
15, 16 years earlier called The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which is a British movie. I don't know if anyone else has seen this one, but it's another one of those like B, C level movies. But the United States and the Soviet Union both accidentally test a nuclear device at the exact same time. They didn't they didn't time it out, you know, take turns. This causes the Earth to get off its axis, to get off tilt, causes a bunch of bad stuff to happen. It loses we lose our orbit and uh, around the sun, and we start like orbiting towards the sun. And they ultimately decide. The way to get this back on track is by detonating more nuclear weapons in Siberia to kind of spin it back in place. So it seems the writers stole the story. Essentially the same thing. And it's completely false. So it's very obvious they were riffing off of someone else. My Google history is very odd sometimes, particularly around podcast episodes where you may see me go, can Earth lose access nuclear war? But it came across a Gizmodo article that was talking about um, mostly talking about that British film, and it, it, it interviews a astrophysicist at Caltech. And the quote here is, uh, The kinetic energy of the Earth orbiting the sun is so strong, it would take 600 quadrillion one megaton nuclear weapons detonated in the exact same spot in a way to push the Earth in one direction to knock it off its axis. Furthermore, if you actually had that many and exploded it, apparently it's 10 times more than you would need to overpower the gravitational binding energy holding the Earth together. So if you could knock it off its axis, it would just like destroy itself like Alderaan uh, at that point. So really, obviously sci-fi. We want to tell a story. I don't know if I would call it sci-fi. I would call it fantasy at this point. Mm, it's moved into yeah. the space opera period. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> well... We, we, we're basically, other than the sky being a little bit weird, there is some stuff that people have to deal with. There's still radiation in certain places. Well, the movie's not really clear because there's no one with radiation sickness. Everyone's just kind of doing doing their thing. Um, but we do have to deal with radiation mutating giant scorpions and killer cockroaches. So I felt very attacked. I felt like the movie was taking place in Texas between the really, really hot weather because I've just gone through an entire month in three digits, I think. Oof. Plus, you know, the we don't have weird looking skies, but we've got a lot of interesting red skies these days. Maybe it's related to to the heat, but we have scorpions here and we have very large cockroaches. And mm. so I had to look away from the screen and hide during those scenes. I actually found these to be like oddly out of place and kind of disturbing too. It, it like, okay, so the scorpion thing, I'm not a big arachnid guy i guess like if I, I don't really like big spiders or big you know big big scorpions it was like even though it was extremely fake i was like oh it's kind of gross and then the cockroach stuff it was kind of one of those points where this movie like didn't know what it was because that was that was like kind of body horror yeah people like flesh-eating cockroaches that are that, that, that have like armor plating because of reasons but um if you lived in texas <laughs> and you had to like check things for scorpions. You might have taken offense to the large scorpions and then the flesh-eating cockroaches. My first evening in Texas when I moved here from Washington, D.C., um, I arrived very late because I got a flat tire in nowhere, Texas, had to be towed. Oh, my goodness. Mm. I've got a lot of road troubles, apparently. I should never hit the road again. Um, I come into the house and there's like two cockroaches on the wall and they're bigger than my thumb. Ooh. They're bigger than my thumb and they have antennas and you can see the little antennas like moving around, like looking at you. So, you know, I, I, I realize you guys are on the East Coast, 
watching this from Texas where I do sometimes feel like I'm surrounded by things trying to kill me. <laughs> so th this part's not that yeah, but this part is not sci-fi. This is a a documentary. It's a real documentary. It's a documentary, yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> this is where the first time the movie got me where I'm just like, wait, eight million dollar budget? Because we see Tanner and Keegan. Um, they've quit the Air Force. Uh, the war is over. He, uh, Tanner is on his motorcycle. He loves motorcycles. Uh, it's one of the things that they kept from the the book. He's from he's traveling from Barstow, California, uh, gathering supplies and coming back to the missile base. I don't know what supplies they grabbed in Barstow. The only thing I know about Barstow, California, is there's a, there's a McDonald's there in a train station. That's why I remember always as a kid. Um, very cool. But they're coming back from here. Keegan's painting this big mural on the wall outside of whatever bunker that they were living in. And there's a CGI of giant scorpions that is just like they took a camera. They put it close to a scorpion. They cut out the image of that and they like put it in front of the screen. I wouldn't call it CGI, Tim. I would just call it. I don't think, I don't think there's, there's a computer within 400 miles of this movie. <laughs> well, he's. Yeah, I don't think it was. They, they ran out of money. They had no CGI. So this is what they did. They they took a picture of a scorpion, made it super big, and threw it on the screen. Yeah. Apparently, they tried at one point to use um, animatronic scorpions. And they're like, nope, that doesn't look good. We'll go with this. Uh, um, but he's taking his motorcycle. It looks like he has a, a woman in the back of his motorcycle. And he's like trying to avoid the scorpions, but it's there's no interaction at all. At one point, he gets surrounded by scorpions, so he kicks the lady off of the motorcycle to get eaten by scorpions, and he drives away. And it's like, haha! It turns out it was just a mannequin that he was bringing for painting that reasons or something. Really but weird. It was mm -hmm. so weird. I guess that's what we're introduced to our character, and the scorpions apparently wanted to eat plastic mannequin. It was a fascinating. Because the movie tries to trick you, but it's very clear when you first see this person, it's a real person in the back of the motorcycle yeah. and in not yeah. a, oh, well, um, at least when he gets back to the bunker that he's hanging out with, with, with Keegan, there's a nice, you know, fully stocked bar there. Maybe that's what he's getting from Barstow. Oh, he's also apparently bringing, you know, adult magazines from, from Barstow because he hands one off to priorities. Yep. Morale seems to be pretty low. It's like the only thing holding it together are cigarettes and adult magazines. So he gives one of these to a younger airman and that airman falls asleep in a bed next to a giant leaking flammable gas tank. He drops a cigarette <laughs> that causes the entire base to just explode, kills everybody, but four people on the base, including the base commander, uh, who, for some reason, is played by a very famous actor, Mary Hamilton. People have ever watched Jaws. He plays the the, the mayor in Jaws. He's like an awesome character. Uh, he's also in a movie that we'll cover in the podcast at some point, James, called Whoops Apocalypse, which is like a, a satire, uh, you know, nuclear apocalypse movie. They cut all of this guy's scenes out, and he just catches on fire and, ex and explodes. So, okay. So now it's gone. The entire base is destroyed from... Leaky, flammable gas, um, and yeah, poor base survives nuclear war, but not the smoking habits uh, of these of these guys. Really, the message is smoking kills. Well, that's why they have the sign up that says "Don't smoke here." Um, we get a lot of like the footage of the. This is a reoccurring thing. We have a scene instead of footage filmed just for this movie. They go to stock footage, and we actually get a nineteen sixty five World War Two movie called Operation Crossbow, which also has pepper in it and it's exploding there and this one it is also interesting because that movie plot is about a sabotage effort to destroy hitler's v1 v2 rocket program 
V2 rockets, uh, kind of a foundational early U.S. ICBM missile program, um, you know, technology. So anyways, there's some connection there I thought was kind of interesting. But Keegan and Tanner survive. The Denton survives, and this guy, Lieutenant Tom Perry, survives. And what were they working on? Why were they why were they not in the base when it exploded? They were uh, they're, so they're 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 working on basically a communications device. They're not a device. They're getting a radio. They're getting a radio transmission signal on repeat about people living um, in Albany, New York, um, which is by my measure about three thousand six hundred miles from where they are. As the ICBM flies, yeah. Yeah, radio radio heads, please write in. Please um, tweet at Nuclear Podcast and let us know if that's uh, if that's plausible. This this broadcast has been on the air weekly since the war has ended. Basically, since the base is destroyed, there's nothing left. Um, Denton recruits Keegan and Tanner to join them on the start of our cross-country radioactive road trip. And Natasha, I want, I want you to describe what you witness rolling out of the barn you know coming coming out you know ready to go what was your first impression when you saw the landmaster i mean it's something to behold i mean i i i was quite jealous massive um metal looks very sturdy i'm not sure how agile it should be i mean i i read in the specs here it's supposed to be able to climb 60 degrees i don't know it looks like it could be a little heavy for that and go underwater too i don't know how you would get back out i mean <laughs> there are there are issues like i'm wondering it's pretty pretty heavy there's not a lot of windows so pretty gloomy inside it's a, it's kind of like a a weird looking tank kind of thing but not a tank this machine can handle a 60 degree incline can operate in water has a cruising speed of 60 miles an hour it's three separate drive sources and can operate with either the front or rear wheels out of action. How's it do on gas? Do you think this thing was built from the ground up or was this modified from something that they had in place? I don't know. I, was, I couldn't get that uh, a sense of that. It didn't look familiar. Yeah. You know it looked it... like maybe, oh, it looked like maybe a reject from Star Wars movie. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Like a like like an original Jawa sandcrawler or something, I mean it's meant to be a armored personnel carrier. It seems like, but nothing that I've seen in real life. But I mean, it's got missiles. Oh, oh, oh I've seen yeah. something in real life. Uh huh. You have. Oh yeah, this thing is straight out of Dulles Airport. Oh right, the people. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know the shape is kind of reminiscent. Less less big tires. Uh, a little more streamlined, but I was like, this is the people mover. Oh, just I love to, it. Just... <laughs> yeah. With le with less windows. With less windows. Yeah, but still the same amount of um, anxiety uh, when you're riding. Yeah. <laughs> so this has 12 wheels. Each of these like wheel wells has three wheels together. They're always like constantly like spinning and rotating um, like over each other. Um, there's missiles, flamethrowers, cannons. In the book, there's also apparently like knives and like daggers that get thrown out of there, maybe like chainsaws or something. Uh, the movie tries to pretend like there's two of them, but it is so clear from watching the movie. There's just one and they just reuse the footage again every time um, to make it look like there's two. And I wanted to learn more, so I, I go to, to Twitter and I always uh, am now going to ask uh, Bill Gerhardt, who runs the excellent website Conrad. 
uh, on Twitter. He's at Connellrad6401240. Uh, he gave me some links to some resources. Um, he's always great on nuclear history and pop culture and civil defense. So he has like essentially some some stuff he showed me, like this the spec. If you wanted to rent this for your birthday party or your movie, here's the stuff that they would tell you. It was officially called the Landmaster, the Damnation 12-wheeled drive vehicle, uh, 20,000 pounds, 35 feet long, 13 feet tall, gas-powered Ford motor, automatic transmission, articulated steering, um, although it looks like the two metal pieces were just covered up by fabric, it seems like, uh, like connected. Uh, its top speed is 60 miles per hour. It was built in 1977. And if you wanted to rent this thing in nineteen in the early nineties, it would cost you fifteen hundred dollars plus five hundred to transport it and hundred and twenty five if you wanted the rockets removed. I don't know who would, but you could. So I had two things in common. My um truck camper on top of my truck was actually thirteen feet four inches tall. Okay. So I had some clearance. You could situation. go through the same drive throughs. Yeah. Okay. And um, also, I would consider my top speed around 60 miles per hour. Now, I could get 65 if the road was super flat, smooth, no weather, no wind. Mm -hmm. um, but anything bumps, wind, weather, curves, and I'd be at 65 or lower. So Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, this is some similarities here. I like this. We may wonder why this trip, you know, why if we watch the movie, why didn't they just take the roads like Route 66 or something? But Denton mentions this. He says there's a very specific pathway that he knows they need to take to avoid the worst of the radiation hotspots. And he nicknames this Damnation Alley, uh, which is the name oh! of the movie. Yeah, air horn. <laughs> this is basically the movie, right? There's a lot of like, you know, there's various encounters, which we don't really need, I think, to go to into great detail. I think we've set up most of the, the stuff that's here, but... There's, you know, over some soundtrack of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, a uh, nice rendition of that. They, We see some stuff, right? We see a strong storm destroys one of the Landmaster vehicles and we lose Perry. So number one, um, a little storm kills one of the guys. Why did you two guys quit the Air Force? What Air Force are you referring to? Well, the service then. Well, I mean, after the bombs fell, it didn't seem to me to make much sense to keep on doing all those duties and fatigues and saluting and serin. What do you think would have happened if we'd all felt like that? Well, if more people had felt like that, there'd be a hell of a lot more people feeling and thinking. And playing baseball and singing and um, making love and raising babies. Hey, why don't you just call me when you want me to drive this mother? We have killer cockroaches in Salt Lake City. They eat Keegan alive. We already talked about that. This whole town is infested with killer cockroaches. Repeat, killer cockroaches. No kidding. They stop in Las Vegas, because why not, right? They said the lights are on in Las Vegas, so let's go there. They uh, meet up with, they find a woman named Janice in the only casino that they go to. Apparently she was survived because she was in a fallout shelter because a, a sleazy show producer promised a role if he were to bring her to the shelter he doesn't survive because i think he like and then she's just kind of like along for the ride they don't really ever give her anything to do in this movie other than to kind of sit on the back of the motorcycle with tanner um but uh what what, what else do we have here we run into this character named billy who throws rocks at the main character and i did enjoy that yeah they run into billy who's kind of like a feral teenager child character who they meet in the plains um, Tanner chases him down on the motorbike. They 
they you have it written here tim they wrestle which i think is inaccurate description of what they do uh near the edge of a cliff like kind of on a crater i think this is meant to look like this is where a, a you know a, a, a missile detonated um i've been here before this, I, is out, this is outside of flagstaff um a okay. of that route 66 trip we went on it, yeah i guess it looks like a detonation point so there's a weird kind of scene with with billy where they're they're giving him food he's eating like two plates of whatever rations they have and it's where the movie's like a little tonally off. I mean, it's tonally off in a lot of places, but it's extremely tonally off here because he tells like very, a very sad story about both of his parents dying. Like his father, I think, breaks both his legs and he like sits with him until he just starves to death or dies or something in the desert. And then his mother dies in another horrific way that I, I can't recall. Maybe she just killed him in the, in the blast. I, I don't I don't remember exactly, but he like tells the story and then they're like, and then he's just like, well, could I please have another plate of food? <laughs> and, then, and then they're, they're like, would you like to come with us, Billy? And he's like, only if I can learn how to ride the motorbike. Yep, <laughs> and yep. uh, and then then they're off, uh, and we don't hear about his parents again. Uh, so no, it, it's, uh, <laughs> no, it was two years ago. He's over it. Well, no, D- did he say it's like his dad was like, like a couple how, like a couple, day, couple of days or weeks or something? He was like, oh, it was four moons ago or something. He uses some like kind of anachronistic way to describe like how much time has passed i guess but one of them yeah one of them was pretty recent i i heard like more recent than that surprised well, me everybody processes death and loss mm-hmm. in different ways that's, i don't that's know why true. you could be so judgmental that's that's fair that's fair um <laughs> let, us, let us see how hungry you are after trenton it's destroyed when, yeah when the pork, uh, when the pork roll is gone uh we'll see what happens but there there is a, a scene that i guess is somewhat important where denton kind of like that scene in airplane where he comes up to the cockpit and it's like um oh this is nice to fly a plane and then the pilot goes joy you like movies about gladiators <laughs> uh anyways the, like that scene that basic setup um denton and billy have a discussion about why the earth is off you know tilt and whether it would ever come back, Denton says, well, some people believe the Earth would fix itself, or we could nuke it back, or whatever. And Billy disagrees. He's like, the Earth would never fix itself. Things don't go well for for any of us. So what's going to happen? Nothing. This is it. This is how things are going to be. Billy, with all those explosions, they, they knock the world off its axis. What's it's axis? Kind of like its center. Yeah, something like that. And if it comes back, everything could come back to normal. Well, would it take another explosion to do that? Straighten it up? I don't know. It could do it all by itself. Nothing good ever just happens by itself. No matter how much you want it to. You gotta make it. So that's what I, um, as a writer, call foreshadowing mm-hmm. uh, in a very awkward attempt to m- basically enable the ending, not to spoil anything. We're going to get there. The whole point of this. And so they're like, oh, well, you know, we need to fix everything at the end. Well, let's go like have them have a discussion early on about <laughs> how it might get fixed. Yep. I mean, I want to fire these writers, the dialogue, the script, the story. And the people who thought that Star Wars was going to be a flop compared to this. So, yeah, moving on. <laughs> it is interesting. We are presented with a choice. Like, maybe they're going to find more nuclear weapons and they're going to go to a place and, and detonate them just where they need to be to get the Earth back on its tilt. There c- could have been one of the a subplot that we would see. 
Or it just magically recovers. (laughs) One of those two options. James, which one do you think was going to happen? Well, it's like Billy has kind of a wise quote, like nothing happens if you don't work for it. So I'm like, oh, okay, they're going to go look for a bomb and blow it up and knock the roof That back. would be storytelling right there, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> but No, instead we instead we meet a bunch of rednecks who may yeah. or may not be affected by radiation or just have really bad acne uh, in, a, in a gas station in the Midwest and they have to like fight them off. And there's, you know, just the classic things you see in 70s movies where uh, the female character is, or and I guess the child is like threatened with sexual assault and they have to fight them off, and but the good guys get to blow up the gas station and, and save the day. But and the writers are like, we got to use these missiles. Mm-hmm. How are we going to use these missiles? Let's blow something up. Oh, I got an idea. Let's put a bunch of Midwesterners and put like little funny sores on their face and let's have them like yeah. go after the kid and the woman and blow it up. It's just wonderful, like how everyone from the Midwest talks like they're from Alabama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's you. It's like, it's like you. How long have you men been around? Since everything went to hell, there used to be more of us, now there's less. All the dead are dead, and all the living are dying. It goes for you as well. They're like outside Michigan somewhere, they're in Wisconsin probably, like, and everyone's like, well... Well, what what are you doing around here? There, it's like uh... you know what gun tone does to you. You know what gun tone does to you. It turns yeah. you into a southerner. Yeah, if they're in if they're in real Wisconsin, they'd just be like, "Oh, sorry, yeah. Oh, well, oh, well. Here's uh You want a hot dish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you like a casserole? We just had one come out the oven. Uh... No one ever talks about that side effect. Apologies of to everybody from all states for offending. <laughs> fun this is why i'm from california is we don't have accents and you can't make fun of us except for we can make fun oh, of sure california can. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough well <laughs> we have to get to detroit because the drive train breaks and they need to stop at a scrapyard to get parts and let's talk about what detroit is it's motor city yeah except so- <laughs> it's one big scrapyard that's all detroit is mm-hmm. i just want to point out that detroit is a major detour detroit you go up into Michigan and Albany, you want to keep on going across Ohio. What are you doing up in Detroit? And then are you going into Canada to go over the Niagara Falls? That's the shorter route. Hmm. They didn't talk about Canada. See, this is the problem when you talk to a road trip who actually knows things about the country. (laughs) I did the same Google mapping today and I was like, well, as the the crow flies, you're going through Western Ontario. Absolutely. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm from, I was born in Canada. And we've made the trip back and forth to Michigan and Canada many times. And if you're the shortest way from Michigan to New York is through Canada. So the problem was Billy didn't have his passport on him. So they couldn't they couldn't get through uh, the border security. That's what my guess is. They did end up very quickly in Albany after Detroit, which I have to point out again, is a very long trip. But hey, who's... Well, here's how they make it there. <laughs> All of a sudden, out of nowhere... There's a huge storm, like one of the storms that the original open opening text warned us about. So they all have to like get inside at the last second. What looks like biblical proportions of flood and rain and a dam breaking, um, all of the stuff. A giant super tsunami picks up the landmaster, carries it, flops it around. No one dies in this one, even though that little st- storm that just flipped it over one time. Maybe that's how they get there so quick. They were carried. I think they were carried by a giant wave. We don't know how long time has passed, but basically they open up the top of the 
Landmaster and like, you know, 40 days after the Ark and Noah, you know, that whole story, they open up the door and if they're near Albany, the sky is blue again. And it's, uh, a, you know, a quick way to make a 540 mile trip. Not bad. I guess in theory, there are waterways that connect this this hmm. route. So maybe like Lake Erie, I'm, now I'm, I'm doing think, favors for the rights, but Lake Erie just has this massive flood and Lake Erie kind of floods across central and western New York and okay. leads them to Albany. No, maybe the this, storm comes in and it picks up Lake Erie into the air and it carries <laughs> off the landmaster in a massive wave and sends it right to Albany. Because yeah. the riders at this point are going, wow, we've been going on for some time with no direction and no storyline. We better end this thing now. <laughs> yeah they um and again like the, they've done previously they don't have the money to design this themselves and foot and shoot and shoot this footage or whatever so they basically just use water scenes from the movie <laughs> earthquake from 1974 and atlantis the lost continent from 1961 they reuse all of that uh but most importantly uh we didn't have to fire more nuclear weapons off the earth just kind of fixed itself it is back up and the earth is the sky is is blue again and everything is nice and they're they're having a nice little picnic repairing the landmaster that's back on land again and we get to see a few shots of the landmaster on on, on water um apparently it could float this thing that they actually did build because it had some styrofoam or some sort of padding that on the bottom of it but they they make they make land fall 20,000 pounds and it could float. In what mass of water could that thing float? The Dead Sea. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's floating on, on our, our salt, uh, our salty feelings. Um, but they hear some music on the shortwave radio. It's a message telling other survivors to come out. So uh, Denton makes radio contact. Billy uh, and Tanner jump on a motorbike and they head over to this town, and what do we what do we see to wrap up this movie? We see a beautiful group of people welcoming them with open arms in a normal, sort of untouched looking suburban avenue. I guess. I mean, it's it's like nothing ever happened. <laughs> yeah, untouched by both nuclear war and storms and scorpions. It just seems fine. Albany is a beautiful place. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we want to move there. The Albany bubble. Yeah, and uh, the movie ends with hugs and Denton making one kind of final funny joke, which is, please don't judge Tanner um, and think that the, the whole group here are all like him. We are sending you uh, an emissary. His name is Tanner. Please don't take him as an example of the rest of our party. But I, do, I will say at this point, like, Tanner has kind of been fine in, like, Proved yeah, himself and whatever. Good hair. Yeah, his hair is, he's allowed to have that hair now, and that's great. I do like that they, they keep up, like, the antagonistic generational repartee until just to, like, the very end. They don't, they never let up on that. There's no, like. There's no uh, landmaster uh, under a bridge, you know, moment where they. Yeah. There's right. no arc whatsoever to these characters. <clears throat> except for the, no. except for the arc story uh, of Noah and his arc. Um, oh yeah that one that one but that's fair so this is the movie this is the movie i asked you all to watch before we <laughs> before we dive into the nuclear stuff here and we loved it yeah what do you what, what do you all think <laughs> let it let it flow out now what is uh what other kind of thoughts that we didn't cover in the courses before we kind of dive into the the nuclear stuff here 
What are your major takeaways from this movie? All right. So one thing that bothered, I mean, okay, everything about this movie bothered me. Let me clarify. But um, <laughs> as a road tripper, there were some things that bothered me in particular. There was one. So my favorite scene of all was when they decide they're going to go get gas. Okay, let's review. There was a nuclear war two years ago. Presumably, over the course of those two years, people were scavenging things of value. Mm -hmm. Gasoline would be probably somewhere near the top. And they think that they're going to go get gas. Okay. They pull up and I'm like, okay, what's going to go on here? And he takes, goes to the gas pump and takes off the handle and it's not connected to any hose. And I'm like, yeah, see, I could have told you that. <laughs> but anyway. And then the other funny thing was the comments about the showers and they made it very um, sensitive to the woman on board that, you know, everyone could have showers and privacy and the whole time, because when you when you camp and you camp full time, you're very aware of everything coming in and out of the camper at all times. And you're monitoring tanks at all times because the tanks fill up. And even in a in a unit like that, where the tanks were probably pretty sizable, they would fill up and they'd have to be emptied. There was no emptying of any tanks. But also the big question was, where are you going to get water that you can shower with if everything is radioactive everywhere? Mm -hmm. Where are you going to get that water supply? I mean, water would be pretty much at the top of the list as well. Mm -hmm. And they don't show anybody getting any water. You could just take, you know, unlimited showers in this thing. And I'm here to tell you that that's not, that's not accurate. She did like to shower while the RV was moving as well. And I'm not sure if that's possible or, or advice. I think normally, normally you park it, I think, when you, when you take a shower. Generally, showers can be a dangerous place to be. I mean, if, if, you know, in terms of having accidents, um, being in an RV shower, they're not the biggest, you know, situations and they were not driving on roads. They were driving <laughs> over bumpy terrain. You would not want to be in the shower at this time. <laughs> I will say though, I, I do think it is part of the civil defense recommendations that if you are outside and there's dust, you know, it's to remove your clothes and take a shower, but I'm not sure that they were really going for that. I think you're right. They just, uh, at one point, he's like, I got X amount of water. We can, as long as no one dies on this trip, when people proceed to do so, we'll be able to have, you know, showers and things like this. But they never stop. That's a really long trip to yeah. have water on board. I'm just saying I had a very, I had a 65 gallon tank and I took super short showers and I had to refill that tank every four to five days. Do, do you think they did the uh, water world method of that, of like recycling water from the head? Well, I don't know. They didn't talk about that. They mm -hmm. could have talked about that instead of the access. That would have been yeah. made more sense. Yes. <laughs> but radioactive fallout is one of the things that they seem to care about sometimes in the sense that there's this place they're not allowed to go to and other times not. Like the movie kind of ignores nuclear winter, but there is like giant scorpions and things. And I've covered this on, on our episode previously when we covered the video game series, the Fallout games, what likely would actually happen to animals. They probably tend to not get large uh, in the midst of radiation, they would probably just end up getting genetic damage and not be able to repopulate. Uh, but cockroaches probably would make it. They seem to be pretty resilient to these things. We don't need to get into that, but there, it is interesting that this movie says that this radiation is a problem, but not for Detroit. It seems like, which also seems to be a place that would be a target for a nuclear attack, but maybe it was one of those where the 40% of the missiles missed. But I don't know. I always find that interesting. They, they cared about radiation, but not any more than just saying that it existed, uh, which is what you run into sometimes with these kind of older nuclear war movies. Well, I mean, I think 
primarily, you know, as a storyteller, telling a story about this vehicle moving through radioactive fallout would be a very different story. Mm -hmm. There would be no, like, you know, motorcycle trips outside. There would be no gallivanting, no nothing. You would be stuck in this thing and you'd have to wear some sort of presumably protective suit and protect your lungs, at least from inhaling the dust and whatnot. And then there would have to be decontamination coming in. And I mean, they took it into account only in the sense that they drove through Damnation Alley, but otherwise it felt like there was no radiation ever anywhere. And, yeah, and a- the Midwesterners had sores on their faces. That was mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, but that could be, that could just be anything. <laughs> Yeah, that just could be, they didn't have showers. Um, <laughs> no, it was, it was you know, I, I think it was, like, even compared to the movie we watched last last time, which was made 26 years earlier uh, in 1951, at least they had a they had a little blurb in that, like, okay, well, we're immune to the radiation. Okay, well, that's fine. It's, 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 it's lazy, but at least it, Mm-hmm. At least it's better than this, you know. Like at least it provides some kind of, uh, you know, uh, vaguely like sci-fi reason for why you're not impacted by the thing that killed everyone else. But in this, it's just like, hmm. nah. Well, one other. Don't worry about that. Yeah. There's big. There's big bugs. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, one other admission that was like uh, the other movie that we covered recently, the five. Um, was that there's a, pretty much a total omission of like geopolitics and what caused the war. And honestly, not even a thought of like, hey, we had an active role in continuing this devastation, you know, with the missiles that we fired. There's one quick scene where Tanner wipes his face and it's like, oh, I can't believe what I just did. Or maybe it's more just like what just happened or whatever. And then it's like, no, nah, I'm just going to hang out and chill for the next two years, riding my motorcycle and, and uh, avoiding scorpions and things like that. I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting. Sometimes these movies in the in this time period, I know it's meant to be more of an action movie, but there was no discussion at all about kind of what life was like, and they didn't seem to dwell on it other than that it, it's a an obstacle for the Land Rover to overcome. Did anyone else notice that or have a sense of that that was something that should have been included? I don't think for this story, but I think that there should have been some sort of story. So to me, there was a lot of random things that happened on a road trip with no through line, with no, I mean, the characters didn't undergo any sort of rebel, you know, transformation, personal transformation, despite the, it was, it was interesting, you know, we talked about Billy Mm -hmm. kind of going, oh yeah, my parents, whatever, but that was kind of how they treated everything in the film. Yeah. There was no emotional reaction or response or contemplation or reflection. In fact, it kind of didn't feel like a, a nuclear apocalyptic film. It just felt like there's a lot of weird skies and sand and stuff and a lot of weird things happening, but no connection to me personally for, for, to nuclear war. Yeah. That is kind of mostly just in the first, I guess, quarter third of the movie and everything else after that is just random giant monster bug things or things that could have been literally any, could have been an episode of the A-Team for all, for all we kind of really noticed well, that's why, you know, moving into the, what I call the parking lot movie discussion portion of the podcast, where we talk about non-nuclear, you know, topics, um, was the whole thing with the skies and the earth being off its axis, would you, do you feel like that was important at all to the story, other than just it being uh, an interesting visual? Like, the fact that the earth kind of came back on its own, I know you've mentioned before, Natasha, what you would do, you know, you wouldn't recommend that necessarily as a story device, but it just seems to me to be this very odd and out of place and not really something they needed to do other than wanting a happy ending at the end the earth had to fix itself somehow 
Yeah, I think they were looking for a happy ending, which you're not going to get in a nuclear war of this proportion, you know, at least not in the time frame of a movie mm-hmm. um, as as shot. But I think there's just many other things they could have done that that would have been better. And I am violently opposed to things that distort or um, give the wrong information to Americans about there's just so many more more there was so many interesting stories that could be told and it, it felt to me like well how do we explain the weird skies and stuff you know <laughs> it's like they wanted to create some sort of atmosphere and ambience and then they needed a logical explanation for why they were like doing funny things with the skies and apparently that caused them to go crazy over budget and caused them to be as delayed as they were and and, and huh. allowed Star Wars to overtake them is because they needed to add in post-production in random scenes when the sky, I think, looked cool. Apparently they used lasers against this backdrop and shot up lights and everything. It looked really neat. It just looked terrible against the, you know, Jan Michael Vincent's head. Uh, and it didn't really look like it placed very well. But James, what do you think? Like, you, was that an interesting component to that for you at all? Like you said, Natasha, there is, there is no story here, which is, which is challenging. Um, you know, when, when you look at stories like this that we've done before, like, there are sometimes arcs that I think things can fall into a few categories. One of them is like things are terrible, but through perseverance or will or through love or community, humans can like find redemption through an apocalypse scenario and perhaps like cobble the pieces together to build a new world. Or there are like more fatalistic, pessimistic outlooks, which are like, no, we can't. Like we've, we, we messed it up and it's done. Like, um, we've we've kind of uh, cast the die for our own destruction, but this manages to thread the needle and do neither. Um, <laughs> it is neither about like humanity's ability to overcome uh, challenging scenarios and like rebuild the world, like the, or like have a, have a viewpoint that like humanity is important, distinct, and beautiful. Nor is it like particularly fatalistic and it's like, no, we're all just blobs of electrical signals and we will kill ourselves because of greed or whatever nasty animalistic impulses we have. This movie is just like, no, you know, might might work out in Albany. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, you know, that's, that's it. Like that's, that's the, that's the whole. It's, yeah. Sorry, it's interesting yeah. That even on a micro level, they had an opportunity to have some sort of story. You know, when you go on a road trip, uh, one as long as this one, and you go through certain weird things along the way, you meet certain weird people. I mean, right. you, you do experiencing things. And, but I, I can easily say that, that my five month road trip changed me. Now I didn't necessarily realize it until later, you know, what things had changed, but as I was going through them and, and they've been on the road for a while, I, that took a long time, that trip at 40 miles per hour top, <laughs> you know, um, with that, with that vehicle. And then the various obstacles they ran through, there was an opportunity, even if it wasn't some sort of grand, you know, redemption arc or, or whatnot, there was still an opportunity for them to react to the weird they were seeing, like, you know, the Midwesterners with the sores on their faces. That was, a, I was like, I, I think a lot of times I just like looking at the movie kind of going, what, yeah. what's going on here? Characters are the same at the beginning as they are at the end. And which is both boring, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's see how they were hoping to maybe portray this stuff. And you can tell me which of these director cut things that were removed for either budget or, um, you know, time cutting reasons that may have helped improve the movie for you. So here's some of the stuff that they cut from the original director's version of this. There was a love triangle between Denton, Tanner, and Janice. 
I assume they mean that it was Denton and Tanner fighting for the affections of Janice, but I'm open to other combinations. There were more scenes of post-war life at the base that showed morale falling, mutinies. The base commander actually got to have words other than, ah, I'm on fire. Um, <laughs> like, there was like, you know, he was an alcoholic, they mentioned at one point, and you get to see, get to see some of that. Um, there were full-size animatronic scorpions, at one point, there was more about why they stopped in Las Vegas. There was um, an alternate title at one point called Survival Run. And here's here's what George Peppard said, comparing the two different versions of the movie. And I'll then throw it over to you all. Here's what he said uh, in an interview with uh, in a magazine. He said, um, this is a pretty good film. Jack Schmidt directed it. At that point, I think it cost about $6.5 And they went to $8 million to change the color in the skies. They totally re-edited the film. The executives. This is no longer the film that Jack created. Unfortunate, because he did a wonderful job. It was the story of some people who go across America from the New Mexico area to Albany, New York, with one of those futuristic things called a landmaster. A Trek story. The only humanity is what happens between the people, the relationships, the sexuality, the attempted murders, and so forth. None of that you'll see now. That's out. It's a Trek story with this landmaster with purple skies. So he clearly didn't like it. But if those other elements were introduced to you, do you think this could have been a film that you would have enjoyed? If what he's saying is that a lot of the relationships at the micro level were taken out, you know, mm -hmm. maybe. But I still don't see any, I don't see any evolution of the characters even... So it's hard to see. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar that familiar with how much an edit can change a film, but the the dialogue was hard to listen to at times. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if editing out certain things would have. But I think you know something. I don't like the idea of a romance. It just feels very like well, she's the only woman around. You know, it's hard. It's hard to like buy that that romance. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of think the, I mean, you hear filmmakers talk about it a lot um, and not George Park obviously isn't the filmmaker here, but he's, seems like he was intimately aware of the troubles facing the production and, but you hear a lot of people talk about, well, you know, the problem is that like the studio said we had to cut it down to 90 minutes or it's like, could I watch another hour of this movie? Would this have been better? <laughs> would, would I, would this have been a good two and a half hour film? Like, I can't, I can't imagine it would, but this is what you hear a lot from filmmakers. It's always like, yeah, well, I just, if I had more time to tell my story, then it would be, it would be great. If and only it's we could like, see Zack Schneider's original four hour yeah, version. I, I, I just have a tough time believing another hour of this is going to, is going to make it good. So I, I disagree with Mr. Pappard. May he rest in peace. But it's, <laughs> it's not. I mean, he might, he might have been biased. Um, yeah. I heard this happen. <laughs> well, here's some of the stuff that they changed from the book, which I'll just run through a few of these because it is very different. And at least the book is, is it's not like known to be an amazing uh, book. It was originally just a, a series of smaller stories that they kind of combined together. At least it has a bit of a, a message that it's trying to say. So uh, they couldn't do some of this stuff because uh, the special effects and whatever, they didn't think they could actually do it. But the main character's name is Hell Tanner. So H-E-L-L -L Tanner. He's a straight-up anti-hero slash villain. He is a swastika-tattooed member of Hell's Angels gang, starting the story while on the run from the authorities. 
in a post-nuclear war land that happened 30 years ago, not two years ago. Uh, he is a convicted murderer and rapist. Uh, he's not the same as the Jan Michael Benson that we see in the movie. He, you know, is a guy who's got eventually caught up uh, by the authorities in this world where there's all these different, like, smaller police states uh, in the post-apocalyptic world. Uh, there are some of the similar things. There's storms that prevent air travel. Tanner, he's got skills, though. He's, on a, he's a skilled bike rider. He's able to navigate the ruins of uh, the United States. So in exchange for a pardon, he's given the job of delivering a vaccine that can cure a plague that people in Boston are suffering from. So he makes a trip from California to Boston. He has to avoid giant monsters, uh, lizard monsters, snakes, bats. He gets one of three armored vehicles, and they all get destroyed except for the one that he's on. Uh, basically, he gets there. Uh, this vehicle is a little bit different, though. It, does, it only has uh, eight wheels and not 16 or 12 or whatever the other one was. But um, he fights off gangs and mutants and things like this. And he eventually makes it to Boston delivers the vaccine and kind of then just leaves. They save people in Boston from this plague, but he just lives to fight another day um, being who he is, but he doesn't really change as a person. Still kind of awful, but at least has some good that he's done. Apparently this book inspired things like Mad Max and Judge Dredd comics and other things, even to the point where there's like a Judge Dredd comic story, which is exactly that story, but weirdly enough going the other direction from East Coast to West Coast. Is that story? Interesting to you all. Would you rather have seen that? A few reactions. First, I don't think I'm going to follow this character. Yeah, he sounds awful. Between the swastika tattoo and being a rapist, I am not interested in his story, in his redemption, in nothing. So, you know, I'll, I'll watch, you know, villains, but I don't know. There's just something about being a rapist that uh, does not appeal, will never appeal. But the thing that came to mind here was the Witcher on a motorcycle. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen that DLC. Um James, what about you? I mean I mean, is it more is it more interesting than a potato? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I mean it's hey, it's off it's I off. Like potatoes <laughs> as fries. I mean, those are very interesting to me. I yeah, okay, fair enough. Not a potato is more interesting. Um or can be more interesting. Like, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm not I'm not I'm not here to watch it or or read about it, but like it does sound more interesting than the film that I saw. So I don't At least I don't it know. sounds like it has a story, right? Yeah, yeah, so, like, there's a driving force other than just like let's get to Albany might be better there. There's a thing there. <laughs> there there's a thing. So that's yeah, it, it I guess it's more interesting, yes. Well let's let's wash this down with one more question I have for everybody, uh, which is just for people to name their favorite movie vehicles in fiction. Uh like for me I've just been a big fan for my whole life of the Ghostbusters Ecto-1. Uh, love the fact that it's on a hearse. That's not something that I noticed when I was a kid. Uh, I love that. And then, plus the Bluesmobile. I think some great stories are told uh, there in terms of uh, particularly the Blues Brothers and the road trips that they go on um, that this movie was trying to, you know, hit that same level. Uh, but James and Natasha, do you got any favorites? Yeah, just the, uh, I mean, I, I thought about this today when I was looking at the question and I think just like the uh, Ferrari 250, I'm not a car guy. Like I had to look this up. I, I have never owned a car. My wife owns the car in our family. It's, <laughs> I just, I've never, I've never had a vehicle in my name. So I'm like, you know, just one of these, like uh, uh, just more of a, I don't know, never city guy, I guess to not sound like 
too much of a, a jerk. But uh, anyway, uh, so the car in Ferris Bueller, the Ferrari 250 GT California, which I learned was a thing today, uh, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, that's a very cool movie car. Um, I like how they incorporate into the story. It's like heartbreaking and it's also really a cool car, but just like it's, it's such a major part of the that very funny and good movie that I love from the 80s that uh, that is my favorite movie vehicle. Nice. Natasha, do you have anything? I'm actually a big car person. Um, so I owned a Mini Cooper for 11 years before buying an F-350 Super Duty dually truck to carry <laughs> that pickup truck camper. Um, I have since sold that and I now drive an F-150 um, pickup truck, um, which is super awesome. Um, but what it's missing is all of the gadgets and gizmos um, from James Bond. So I really, really like the rockets on the Landmaster. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of um, things I like to do on the road um, to certain drivers. Um, so I like a lot of gizmos. <laughs> Another uh, favorite car, of course, is, and I don't know the the brand or model, um, is uh, from Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. Travel. The DeLorean. DeLorean, yeah. The DeLorean, thank you. Yeah, it's it, this movie. I don't know. The, so the Landmaster, you find it in a couple different stuff here and there. It's been like in a few TV shows, a few other uh, movie things here and there. Um, it used to be based out of like part of uh, West Hollywood, I believe. If you, if you wanted to go see it, uh, it's still around. It's still owned by someone who knew the original person who built it. Um, I will say the movie. While this movie will run into this is our transition to our rating system here. I will say the Landmaster itself is kind of a neat concept. It's just not what you would hold the movie together with, but I will give it that. I, I could see a world where if this movie was good, I would have a Landmaster toy, or I'd want to see other adventures that the Landmaster and this crew would go on, but there was nothing else holding it together. And that $1,500 daily rental price, that was in 1990? Yeah. I was going to say, listeners, Venmo at Landmaster Fund, <laughs> and we can rent it for a day, and... Do, do the podcast from it. <laughs> yeah, there might be a there might be a bit of an echo, but there will be no character art, there will be no driving force, and you'll get there eventually. <laughs> but we'll be underwater um, the whole time. <laughs> so let's let's move into our rating system here and wrap up. Um, we rate uh, all of our stuff here usually on a scale of one to five, with uh, one being the worst and five being terrific. But I like to tailor. The rating system, if I'm going to get super critical about the plot, I want to be super critical about the rating system. So let's rate Damnation Alley on a scale of one out of five wheels on your RV wheel well. So in each place where you would have a tire, how many tires do you have in that circle? Because the Landmaster had three, um, which is pretty cool. But most cars just have one in there, which is nice. But, you know, a tire gets flat. You're not able to go up those steep inclines. The Landmaster is kind of average. It has three can you imagine if you had five wheels on each of those things? That's like a your own little monster truck uh, based off of, um, you know, just a bunch of individual tires. So I give this 1.5, which is one of those tires are, are popped. This movie, I think, is interesting to start as a basic premise. But once, and that's not very long into the movie, once I think we do our time jump, this movie is bonkers. If it was a short story that was just the beginning, maybe... It's not, uh, it's not something I really I want to see again. I'm happy that I put the people watch it with me. I'm happy to let this thing just kind of float away and not one I really can even recommend to people unless you like watching bad movies. So I, as I throw this over to you all, do you think these are the kind of, uh, just a bad enough movie that's fun to watch and laugh with 
with a group of people. So this is out of five? Yeah, so it's one out of five. All right, see, I think you were kind. I think it's 0. 0.5. Ooh. I don't think there's a wheel at all. 0. 0.5 is fine. It was absolute torture to watch oh, as sorry. a nuclear weapons expert, as a storyteller, and as a writer. And I feel terrorized by it, especially the scorpions. <laughs> So and as a, and as a, as a Texan, as a Texan as well. I am scared <laughs> about finding scorpions in my house. And the one scorpion I have always thought about is the one from Sinbad. Hmm. You know, the Lawrence, uh, Lawrence of Arabia kind of movie, that big old like animatronic, or I don't know, they did a better job of that scorpion. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, what fills my head when I think about looking for scorpions in my own house. I have new scorpions to think about. Oh, so my scorpion thing, just a quick aside, sorry, James. The movie Hook, when they put people in oh, the yeah. box, the boom box, whatever they call the it. The boom box, yeah. Boom box that's, that they, is, that's triggering, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, Natasha? Oh, no, oh. I don't. I'm not going to describe it to you, because it might also scare you. Uh, it, but imagine the box with scorpions and someone inside of it. Ooh, but anyways, uh, James, what do you feel about this? Uh, yeah, I would I give it 1.52, but the wheels are shaped like triangles, <laughs> and they... <laughs> They are not very good, so yeah, um, yeah. It's 1.5. This movie is is awful. Uh, lacks basically everything that you would want in a story or production or really basic coherence. You imagine this was going to be the movie that was going to be bigger in 1977 than Star Wars? Well, here here's here's a question I had that I don't want to. I did have a question. So this movie is set in night, filmed in 1970, released in 1977. It's set in 1979. So did the characters in this movie, in their own universe, did they see Star Wars? Ooh, I'd like to think that they did. I would hope that they have that and they have a, like a VHS copy of it that they're able to watch. Well, they wouldn't have VHS in 1979, but they would have oh, had. Oh, man. Then, yeah, I, I hope that at least they got to see it one time. In the theater? Yeah, I hope it's there. And it, it does remind me of my uh, other favorite dumb movie, uh, which is Reign of Fire. Um, anyone heard of this one? This is a Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale movie where they fight Ooh. dragons and there's a big uh, dragons take over out of London and then they destroy the whole world and their survivors trying to fight them off and there's a very uh, fun scene where they don't have movies or electricity or anything because the dragons have destroyed everything. Kind of like a post-apocalyptic nuclear thing, but it's our two main characters telling the story of Star Wars to children. But just like acting it out like a theater play, like a uh, community theater production and whatever they might remember the Star Wars story to be. I hope that they were able to at least do that if they didn't have an actual print of Star Wars to watch in those bunkers. And hopefully in Albany, maybe there's a theater left in Albany and that's the last movie that was playing because Star Wars played for years. And we can just, that's the only movie left and they just constantly watch that, Star Wars. See, that would have been cool. They go through like a town and there's an old marquee and it says Star Wars. There you go. That would have been that would have redeemed that it. That would have been, been pretty funny though. No, yeah, knowing the history and everything. That would have that would have bumped this up to a two for me. That that could have bumped me up to a one. Yeah. So let's let's re-edit together. Let's watch this movie one more time together. We'll watch this movie and then immediately go into Star Wars. How about that? Yeah. No. I'm perfect. not gonna watch it again. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we don't recommend people watch this, but we have some ideas for people to check out um that's something related to this content. I've got a couple quick things and then I'll throw it over. To, to you all, uh, I would recommend, number one, this article I mentioned earlier by John Noonan, uh, who's a missileer called In Nuclear Silos, Death Wears a Snuggie, 
Wired magazine article from 2011, a quick story about what life was like um, for this individual uh, working in those silos. I do actually recommend that movie we referenced earlier, that British film from 1961 called The Day the Earth Caught Fire. That movie at least knows what it is, uh, and it's kind of fun because it also takes place from the perspective of a uh, journalist who's kind of down on their luck, and not really from like the scientists or anyone else. It's like from the perspective of someone who's not in the main circle of what's happening, uh, kind of a ground level story. Uh, I recommend, you know, because this is a movie about a vehicle that not really about the characters or the plots, uh, this really terrible Hulk Hogan TV show called Thunder in Paradise, which is a, a speedboat based story. If you like the Landmaster in this kind of 1970s era stuff, I think uh, this uh, Hogan show is probably up your alley, Damnation Alley even. And finally, I recommend a book called War Day from 1988 Uh I've talked to Natasha about this before. This is by uh, Stryber in Kuneka. It is a m story about a nuclear war that happens years, years, years later. Journalists are writing this oral history of what happened and what the life was like for people afterwards. And they go on this journey, starting in San Antonio, Texas, uh, going up to New York, and eventually landing in California. And California was one place where it wasn't hit, the, the, all the missiles attacking California were duds. It's the only place left, so it's the Albany of this world. Um, and <laughs> as it should be, California has been untouched, but it's also this like police state where no one's allowed in because they don't want to become uh, you know, the rest of the world's burden um, onto them. So it's a good story. Uh, it's a, it doesn't really have a great ending because it's, it's how do you end a story like that, but it's a lot like World War Z or those oral history fake books. This is a similar one that I would recommend people check out if they like stories like this. Natasha, anything you want people to check out? Ah, well, I will recommend my own novel yes. called Rescind Order, and it is speculative. It's a thriller. Um, it's a bit of a mind bender, and um, it is set in the future, 2033, and it is about the intersection between artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons. And it is not a story that's been told before, but it does riff off of some of the ones that we know and love, um, like the Terminator war games. So obviously it does not have a Terminator in it, but there's like a background context to the Terminator movies that you'd be familiar with. Uh, the uh... Anyway, um, that quick, one quick, and- Quick question um, on that one. The, yeah. Earth's, the Earth's axis in that one, is it untilt or is it on axis? The Earth's axis is unaffected by okay, the good. story. Just want to make sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, re I've been recommending this book a number of times on the podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that that's, if you want to, if you want to see, you know, um, does this person who criticized Damnation Alley have storytelling <laughs> chops? You can go read that book. And I'm actually currently working on my first ever screenplay Ooh. on also set in the future. Um, and this one is about the climate effects of nuclear weapons use. And um, the working title right now is Dark Sun. Love it. James, what do you have to recommend to us? Uh, well, uh, classically, I have things that are uh, not super related, but are funny. Um, so there is uh, season season nine, episode 14 of the show Seinfeld uh, from the NBC <laughs> network. George claims to have met uh, George Pappard, um, <laughs> whom Jerry points out has been dead for several years um, before this episode was filmed. Uh, the premise is that... Uh, Jerry is meeting Jerry Lewis. He needs cufflinks that have that Jerry Lewis once owned. George says, "You don't need an you know you don't need like an intro to him because you have the same name." And he says, "I met like I met George Picard last week." 
And then Jerry's like, well, George Papard has been dead for many years. So anyway, uh, rest in peace, George Papard. I think it's a funny, funny reference to him. So uh, I'd recommend you watch that episode of Seinfeld from 19. That's the final season of the show, season nine. Um, and towards the end, see uh, episode 14. So if you go on the the wonderfully graphic uh, supercriticalpodcast.com, I have a feature up there called the number, like basically like nukes in Seinfeld. The number of nuclear weapon references in Seinfeld is in, it's not like every episode, but it's in the dozens. And I've collected every one of them. It's fascinating, the number of jokes that they make about nuclear things in that 90s show. So I'll, I'll link to that as well. So there's a Ch- hook. Ch- Children of the Cold War, I guess, right? The, it's uh, the, the, it's the almost worth rewatching. I mean, I didn't actually, I when I watched Seinfeld, that was pre-being a nuclear weapons expert for me. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I didn't hone in on any of those things. It's just, it's little jokes here and there and references and stuff. Never enough for a full podcast or anything, but it was enough that I'm like, okay, I have to start collecting these things. Uh, the next reference would be in the, this is actually one of the highlights of the film of maybe the one highlight of the film. Uh, they sing "Will the Circle Be Unbroken." I think it's actually kind of a charming little uh, scene that shows a little bit of over the ham radios in the um, in the the mm. land. Yeah, okay. So the 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 vehicles they 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 sing "Will the Circle Be Unbroken" over the ham radios. It's like a humanizing, nice scene, and that's a great old folk song. Uh, I'd recommend the version by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. You can find it on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Music, wherever you listen to things and then my last one just because this is my industry i'm into tabletop gaming uh it's a short read uh because it's a card and you can just look it up online the card is called armageddon it's in the game magic the gathering um it's a white mana card it costs four to play and it says destroy all lands that's the name of the card the card's called armageddon um after watching this movie look at the card that's (laughs) it's from the beta version it's a very old magic card there you go. That's my, my third recommendation. So uh, nice. that's it. <laughs> well, the next time that we play Match of the Gathering together, when I'm you know a novice at it, I'm just going to throw down the Damnation Alley card and see what happens. <laughs> Natasha, thank you so much for joining us today on this uh, two-hour journey um, through Damnation Alley. I sincerely appreciate your time tonight, but also your patience watching this movie. I promise if you ever come back, uh, I will have a good movie. For you to watch but this one just seemed seemed perfect to talk about with you <laughs> well thanks so much for having me and i i survived where can people find you um, if they want to read more and hear more from you well if they want to check out my fiction they can go to my website at www.natashabadjama.com if they want to find out about my radioactive road trip they can look it up on youtube or go to www.radioactiveroadtrip.com I think <laughs> can we watch the pilot somewhere is that anywhere available or that maybe some point in the I future? haven't I actually have not uploaded it yet um it's sitting on YouTube um but not for private uh public consumption but I may just kind of put that out there because um I've made it through the the um film festival kind of loop and I can mm-hmm. go ahead and do that so I'll get it up on YouTube soon I'm excited to see uh it in person because I've only seen the other clips and things and it, um but congratulations on that. Congratulations on making it, surviving the cockroaches uh, and the, the ants. <laughs> and, and thank you very much again. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, maybe you actually can have that many showers if you're really, really, you know, rashing your water, but you'll still be a little bit stinky. Let me know. Uh, a couple ways you can do that. At 
Nuclear Podcast is where you can find me on Twitter. You can go to supercriticalpodcast.com, admire the art on the header, and uh, write me a message. Or you can go to your Outlook and send me a message at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And I'm James Sheehan. And I'm Natasha Bajma. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Cheers. Cheers.